the Reading Corner today, I'm welcoming Nicolette Jones, who is an author, a critic and a reviewer. And we're going to be talking about her new book, Rites of Passage, Words to Read Before You Turn 13. Uh, I'm so excited to be talking to Nicolette because I feel that I've known her a long time. But it occurs to me that I have never asked the key question, which is how did you get into reviewing children's books? So I'm going to start with that. Um, that is an interesting question. Um, I began by reading, by reviewing adult books for the Sunday Times. But when Harry Ritchie became literary editor, he had the idea that it would be a good notion to give the children's books to one of their adult reviewers because he believed that you apply the same criteria to children's books as you do to adult books and it would sort of take them out of a ghetto it wasn't about worthiness and so on it was about literary critical responses I thought that was a marvelous thing to do not only because I got both jobs um, but because I think I still respond to children's books in the same way that I would respond to adult books and um, people say well how do you know if children will like it and so on but you know it's true of reviewing an adult book how do you know if a particular person will like it? Children are all different, just as adults are all different. So there have to be some objective criteria about what's going on, how well made the thing is, and you have to be able to recognise that and dissect it. And um, so uh, it was it was a marvellous thing, really, that I got the opportunity to do it. When I took it on, I wasn't sure if I um, knew enough about children's books to do this. But very quickly, I thought there are amazing things going on in this field. Why are people not talking about them more? And I was just converted by the quality of the artwork and the, and the literary skills. So I became very quickly converted to how interesting children's books could be. I'm interested that you mentioned there the illustration, mm. uh, because that's applying different kind of critical perspective. So Very, was that new or uh, did you feel that you had the background to do that as well? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, my father was a painter. I grew up in a house full of artists and consequently I felt in some ways more qualified. We, you know, our family holidays when I was a child would involve driving to an art gallery in, you know, usually in somewhere in Europe and looking at all the pictures while dad talked about them and then getting back in the car and driving to the next Musée de Beaux-Arts or whatever. So yes, I'm very good at those questions on University Challenge when you have to identify the painters. So yes, I have a very strong interest in picture books and the artwork of picture books, uh, which comes from my childhood upbringing. Mm. So we come to Rites of Passage, which is a cornucopia of extracts, snippets of writing that are words of wisdom for us to take forward in our lives. Why before you turn 13? Well, to be fair, that was more the brief than my own choice uh, as a title. Um, you know, I think Nosy Crow had the idea that that was a good turning point, a sort of moment when in that transition period between primary and secondary, roundabout then is a, is a point of change in your life. So roughly in my head was the idea when I was about that age, would this have engaged me? I remember when I was about 10, the feeling that I understood everything now. I'd got past the point where 
um, the world was full of things that didn't mean anything and things you couldn't really understand. At 10, you thought it was all clear now. So you begin to think a bit bigger. You begin to think beyond yourself. You begin to think politically about, you think about society, you think about other people's emotions, you, you think about your own future and what your hopes are and all of that, because you feel sort of equipped by about that age. And I think it's it was about that, really. It was about the themes that you might be preoccupied by and the sort of slightly wider horizons you get when once you've got past understanding your immediate circumstances. Mm. Uh, we have writing here from lyrics, speeches, children's books, adult novels, um, extracts, words of wisdom, you know, the popular quotations as well. Uh, and they span a good few hundred years. Did you find that views and attitudes had changed a lot over that time, or was there more continuity than change? One of the things I found very interesting was that you could find the same feeling expressed uh, over very different periods of history, um, which actually made me feel we don't change all that much. But I was very interested in the idea of the language being slightly different between in the way a thing was expressed you know, several hundred years ago and now, um, because I think it's important around that age, if you're going to be reading, to be able to read historical writing as well as contemporary voices. Um, and I wanted there to be a variety so that there would be some things that were very accessible and uh, you could skip through until you found something you didn't have to make any effort because it was entirely the language that you were speaking. Um, but it was, it's also my experience, my experience with my own children, that if you tell them the plot of a Shakespeare play and take them to see one when they're quite young, after a bit, they get their ear in and they can understand Shakespeare. It's not that hard. They're quite quick at that age to understand other styles of speech in the same way that they could understand new slang phrases. They would, they would adopt them very quickly. They would get it, new forms of speech because their own language around them is changing very quickly, often. I think that the same is true of, of older styles. There's a sort of consensus that, you know, it's harder and you more boring and you can't understand it. It isn't actually my experience. I think a lot of kids can absorb very quickly. I'd agree with that. I mean, you only have to watch something like The Wire. I mean, that's no different from listening to Shakespeare, in my opinion. It's as removed from our everyday Absolutely. speech as Shakespeare. <laughs> Absolutely. And we watched all five series in lockdown, my husband and me. Um, and you know and after a bit we got our ear in you know you 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 start to get the Baltimore slang that's going on in a in a it's sort of social context that was completely remote from you and in which they speak in a very different way from you but but it's graspable uh, and uh, because it's brilliantly written the script of the wire um you, you get that what's going on in it, and it's, it's rewarding when you get it. Um, and I feel this about, I'm not saying that I'm trying to force 300-year-old um, voices on children, but I did want there to be a variety in it. Shall we dip in a little deeper and have a look at some of these sections? Um, childhood and your past. I noticed here that you have uh, the Sondheim lyrics, I think, uh, Into the Forest, isn't it? 
uh, into the woods it's called into actually. the woods yeah yeah uh from children will listen yes uh, do you want me to read it i would love that careful the things you say children will listen careful the things you do children will see and learn children may not obey but children will listen children will look to you for which way to turn to learn what to be careful before you say listen to me children will listen and i said in my footnote to this that the lyrics are taken from the musical into the woods and that sometimes musicals have a grown-up perspective, but the idea expressed in these lines is one that everyone will recognize. It's not only the words we read that matter, but the words we hear too, particularly the words young people hear from adults. Perhaps some of the words that matter the most to you are things your nearest adults say. Meanwhile, they have a responsibility to remember that what they say will last in your memory. I wanted to include the idea of the spoken word as well as all these different kind of examples of written words to just say that it isn't, you know, maybe the most important things that you remember, the maxims that you live by are something, you know, your granny says or your mother says or whatever. And if you were keeping your own commonplace book of words to live by, it might include some of your parents' teachers' mm -hmm. favourite sayings. The reason the Sondheim spoke to me I was reading it as a teacher because you know my background is education yeah. and you know children will take the things not necessarily the ones that you're telling them but they listen to all the other things and they're very good at picking out what the hidden curriculum is the hidden agenda and listening I, to that I think that's true in children in in classes and in families um children often learn to read behind the words and to respond to the actions. I found that sometimes if you're talking to kids, you might say something as an aside where you think your main message is being delivered in another way and you discover that the thing that they come back to you with afterwards is only the aside, the throwaway remark that you was off the top of your head and you maybe didn't really mean. So yes, yeah, so you have to be a bit careful. <laughs> because they will pick it all up. I was really interested in uh, the heading for the next chapter, which is happiness and sadness. Again, from the point of view of somebody who's worked in education for many years, I found that sometimes professionals are very worried about sadness. <laughs> we have to keep children happy. They can't cope with that. It's too sad. So yes. I really enjoyed this section. Good. I'm glad. Um, I, there was slightly more emphasis, I realised, on sadness than happiness. But maybe that's because happiness writes white. You know, it's, it's quite difficult to ex express the most joyous moments and also to read about them. I mean, what I hope is that some of the other quotes will inspire joy because they're about something else. But just to read about other people being happy, I think, can be quite a depressing thing to have happen. But if you if you read about how other people are sad, too, and how to deal with it, um, that can be fortifying and empowering. Um, I mean, I liked John Finnamore's very simple thing. He said, if you're sad, remember two things. One, it's not your fault. And two, it, you won't always it won't always feel like this. And I think. 
that's very important to get all of us through the bad moments. And of course, the most the most brilliant book on this subject is Michael Rosen's sad book. Well, it's interesting. I was going to pick that up because here we have an extract without the illustration. And I was really struck by how well it works on its own. I have to say that when I first chose it, I chose it with the pictures um, in the hope that we could include them. But we, you know, that wasn't really the format of the book. It wasn't an illustrated thing. Um, but without the pictures, it still worked. Um, and those two particular bits of advice that Michael has, where he says, when dealing with his own grief, uh, every day I try to do one thing I can be proud of. Then when I go to bed, I think very, very, very hard about this one thing. And also the other piece of advice, which is every day I try to do one thing that means I have a good time. It can be anything so long as it doesn't make anyone else unhappy. And I just think both those things, fantastically good things to aim for if you're struggling with grief or loss or sadness or disappointment or fear or anxiety or any of those things. We inoculate children against sadness we're really stopping them from empathizing where's the empathy if you don't if you can't understand sadness I do think that failure is more important to a child's education than success that the kids that uh, can cope are the ones that learn resilience and learn to get back up from things and it's the same with sadness we would all of us not experience happiness so intensely if we weren't also capable of being sad if nothing ever went wrong, how would you know it was good, really? There has to be contrast. And one of the things that literature is for, from fairy tales onwards and nursery rhymes and so on, is for children to experience sad, difficult, frightening things uh, and process them at a sort of safe distance through literature. So, yes, I think it's very important to let kids know what, what sadness is. I know that Michael Morpurgo writing about very disturbing episodes of history manages to make children feel them. I mean, those books are often tear jerkers, um, but at the same time enables them to somehow process those things. Jacqueline Wilson often writes about sad lives, but with an element of hope. And I think those things, it, you know, it's, it's crucial that we understand that we can we can cope with sadness mm. the next chapter in your book is on nature and the world tell us a little bit about that section uh, I mean of course that was such a huge subject that it's it's a bit of a catch-all title really um, so it ranged from you know Kurt Vonnegut telling children you know god damn it you've got to be kind to uh, the specific uh, aspects of you know, the stars and 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 our relationship to animals and so on. Um, uh, my favourite, as, as I say, in a way, it was a way of putting together things that I'd come up with anyway because I liked them and I thought they were important. But it's also, I suppose, a reflection of this this thing I was talking about earlier, which is the widening of people's horizons at around that age. So it's slightly about something that slightly reflects our awareness of the things outside ourselves and things perhaps beyond people who are very much central when you're very young um, so that you know animals and nature and so on come into it. I'm going to read you one of my favourite bits. Some, this is an author that I always knew was going to have to be in this collection, Tove Janssen. 
Um, and this is from Moomin Valley in November. Lie on a bridge and watch the water flowing past, or run or wade through a swamp in your red boots, or roll yourself up and listen to the rain falling on the roof. It's very easy to enjoy yourself. I love that. And I think if anybody wants to, you know, Toby Jansen, uh, the Moomin books, but also the summer book, if yes. you want to kind of know what it's like in the natural world and you can picture those Finnish archipelagos and just yes. wonderful. It's wonderful. And her own passion for nature and the sea and the rocks and, and the weather and all of that uh, is reflected so much in the Moomin books. Um, but uh, but I just I love the fact that it's about something very simple, like what you do with rain and puddles and so on. But it's very easy to enjoy yourself. It's also about an aspect of mind, about how we how the openness to nature is good for you psychologically, but that you can uh, if you respond to it, you can find happiness. Well, we could talk, you know, about each of these sections, but I would like to talk a little bit about kindness and courage. And I was struck here, you know, I hadn't realised until you very kindly put them on facing pages for me, how close that quote from J.M. Barry and R.J. Palaccio were. Yes, um, Be Kinder Than Is Necessary was actually J.M. Barry before it became a whole movement, really, through, through wonder. Yes, it was. Sometimes these juxtapositions were interesting. Uh, if I can just go back a moment, we were talking about things in different voices over different centuries. <clears throat> um, one of the juxtapositions I particularly enjoyed was um, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft talking about uh, <laughs> the, rea the reaction of men uh, to women, un unwanted comments on their appearance. And Laura Bates saying the same thing um, several centuries later. And I just thought one, one of these statements was being made in the 1700s, how complimenting women was just a, a way of exercising your own superiority. Um, and the other said more or less the same thing, that men are claiming their right to comment and discuss and share their opinion with anybody that happens to be passing. Uh, and, you know, it's 300 years between and it means that women have been saying this for a very long time and it's still necessary to say it. I thought that was so interesting. The, the, the original exa example was Mary Wollstonecraft from A Vindication of the Rights of Women saying, I lament that women are systematically degraded by re receiving the trivial attentions which men think it manly to pay to the sex when in fact they are insultingly supporting their own superiority. And that was said in... Uh, 1792 and in uh, 2014 in the Guardian Laura Bates said uh, talking about unasked for attention in the street she said I don't take it as a compliment because it's not a compliment it's a statement of power it's a way of letting me know that a man has the right to my body a right to discuss it analyze it appraise it and let me or anybody else in the vicinity know his verdict whether I like it or not and I thought how extraordinary Sorry, that was a slight set tangent from what we were saying, but I just when you were talking about juxtapositions of one with another, often it was it made the two together tell you something beyond what the two separately told you. When you put the book together, did you have in mind yourself as a 13-year-old, as in a 13-year-old female, or was this a book for everyone? And is that what 
is eventually reflected, do you think? Uh, I think it was a book for everyone. And I suppose those two quotes were quotes that I wanted the boys to read uh, more than I wanted the girls to read them, because the girls going to know anyway what it's like. They're on the receiving end. They don't need to read about it, whereas the boys possibly do. <laughs> Um, need to know that women have been saying this and, and how they hear it. So, yes, I I was very much trying to make it a book for everyone and very much hoping that there were things that, you know, speak to all genders and all, all kinds of people, really. Um, but then again, I, I think it's partly because what you're looking for is the thought that strikes you as illuminating. You want them either because it's said in a particularly concise and beautiful way or because the idea in it is something that might catch fire in your head um, and I think a lot of these quotations in fact work as as triggers or catalysts for a debate or a conversation you could read a couple of them and then talk about what the ideas are in them and bring out ideas children have themselves or other examples of things that they've read so sometimes these these are um, extracts that work in their own right and you might just read them and think your own thoughts. But I also think in a classroom context, and this seems to be borne out by what teachers have already said about it on Twitter, that it's a very useful resource for, for triggering a conversation. Um, and I hope that that would be a conversation where everybody gets their chance to have a say. So the next section is the section on family. And, you know, I really love all of your choices in this book, uh, Nicolette, but there's one in this section. It's the Roald Dahl from Danny, the Champion of the World, a book that I had to teach when I first started teaching. <laughs> and I want you to convince me that this is worthy of inclusion. <laughs> well, I always thought that uh, the relationship between the, the father and the hero and Danny, the Champion of the World, was one of the great father-child relationships um, and I think that's what I why I included it happens to be my favorite role Dahl I think because of that because that that core relationship and this particular quotation is about his father being somebody who smiles with his eyes as well as his mouth and it's it expresses the um, the warmth and the um, of the character and the bond between the two of them um, so Yes, it was about that. I was looking for sort of ideal fathers because it's easier to find references to mothers and what mothers mean to you. But to find fathers that move you, I realised that um, that Danny's father was one, despite being a, being a poacher. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I just remember the moral indignation that, you know, the poacher could be the sort of hero of the book. I think with years of experience now, I'm perhaps cheering you know Danny's father on a little well, bit more I think it reads now more like class war doesn't it it reads the the underprivileged who are driven to poaching against the the rich and greedy um, mm. who own the land um, and so we have more sympathy if we think think of it as that that you're allowed to break the rules if you if you need to and uh, and if other people have more than they want I think that's what uh, stokes our sympathy for, for Danny and his father. Absolutely. So, yes, I obviously think I'm not going to worry too much about law-breaking. I think we've also learned a lot recently about how what a difference there is between morality 
and law, which may be a dodgy thing to teach in schools, I suppose, but we've also learned that there are all kinds of things that are uh, legal that are not necessarily moral. Really uh, good point. Of course, Dahl is noted as well for perhaps having less desirable values in some of his uh, writing, not so much in Danny, the champion of the world. That's one of the reasons why it's my favourite. You don't feel as though it's quite so caricatured or quite so stereotypical or vilifying of others as some of some of the books are. Dahl is flawed. There's no doubt about it. I, I mean, it's difficult to quote writers and feel that everything about their lives is necessarily whiter than white. And there were some people that we considered and then decided against because we did feel a bit uncomfortable about how we relate to them now. But, you know, Mark Twain is in there and he's been banned in some businesses because obviously his attitude to race is not uh, what we would want it to be now. On the other hand, he was an abolitionist at the time, you know, in the context of the time there, is, he, he wasn't the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose there's the inevitable thing that uh, if you're going to look at writing over a, over a number of years, you're going to find people with attitudes of their time, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to quote the worst slice, slices of writers from the past, but I think when you find a good bit of writing from them, you may have to forgive a bit of their life in order to enjoy it. One of the things that I really appreciated in the anthology was the wide range of writing and the inclusivity was that something that you gave a lot of consideration to? Uh, yes, absolutely, because uh, you know, this was meant to be a book for everyone. And part of the point of it was to give people a cross-section of voices, both literary styles and the kinds of authors and non-authors that you might quote. And I wanted everybody to be able to connect to something. Um, so, yes, there were, there were moments when you think... Have we got voices from different time periods, from different backgrounds, from different uh, levels of difficulty, from all of those things uh, mattered because there was no point in having a selection that is all sounds the same, that is all uh, the same kinds of writers uh, writing for the same kinds of kids about the same sorts of things. Uh, Variety mattered and with variety, inclusivity. I'm sad if there are some voices that aren't included that perhaps could have been but you couldn't have everyone. You have one of my favourite writers, Langston Hughes. I wonder if you'd indulge me by reading. Yes, this is a blissful little fragment of a poem I absolutely love um, in the nature section called April Rain Song. Let the rain kiss you. Let the rain beat upon your head with silver liquid drops. Let the rain sing you a lullaby. The rain makes still pools on the sidewalk. The rain makes running pools in the gutter. The rain plays a little sleep song on our roof at night. And I love the rain. Absolutely beautiful. It's delightful, isn't it? And just the music and the words there that imitate how soothing the idea is of the sound of rain, which is one of of my favourite sounds as well. And also how strongly you can feel about a small thing is a beautiful thought. It's not, um, it's not something big that's outside some people's experience. It's within everybody's experience. 
Mm-hmm. Well, um, as I say, there's so much we could talk about, Nicolette, but it's been such a rich conversation. And uh, I'm at awe in terms of the breadth of your knowledge and the things that you have at your fingertips. Um, it's a wonderful collection. Uh, certainly, I'd urge people beyond the age of 13 to pick it up and read it. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Nikki. You've been very kind and I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I hope you find all sorts of things that go on interesting you in it and that the, uh, the listeners do too. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Nosy Crow. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.